Good afternoon. It's Friday the 7th of January 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, delighted to say, first uh, appearance of the year, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be back. Uh, um, we're going to get uh, straight on with, with Boris, because uh, Boris was speaking to the BBC this morning. And, uh, well, we've got a couple of short clips. Let's listen to the first one. Look at what's happening to patients uh, coming into hospital. A, a large number of them, perhaps 30-40% uh, of them, uh, haven't actually been vaccinated at all. So that's an acknowledgement that 60-70% to 70 of them have been vaccinated. Uh, but that's quite different from the narrative that was being pushed over the last couple of weeks, which was that 90% of everybody in hospital was unvaccinated. So well, a bit of confusion here, it seems. Did he get his numbers wrong before, or are they backpedaling? Uh, and you're seeing the true, you're hearing the true numbers now. What do you think? I th well, I think this, this uh, is a much uh, more uh, accurate number, and uh, uh, a number of uh, people that have been looking at the data have uh, have come up with similar kinds of statistics. But nonetheless, uh, he went on. Uh, and uh, we've got a second little clip here, which gets a bit more interesting. And I've n I haven't said this before uh, in this whole uh, vaccination campaign. I just want to, to reach out to all those who uh, have not been yet vaccinated and say it's a, a great thing. But I also want to say uh, to the anti-vax campaigners, uh, the people who are putting this uh, this mumbo-jumbo on social media. Uh, they are completely wrong. Uh, and you haven't heard me say that before. So uh, completely wrong. Anybody that's uh, countering the government narrative on this, uh, completely wrong. Uh, and we haven't heard him say it before. So the question is, why is he saying it now? Well, perhaps this tweet from Big Brother Watch gives us a clue. Uh, a member of the cabinet, uh, Nadine Dorries, of course, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, uh, boasting about the existence of an opaque Whitehall unit that forces censorship of citizens' online speech at its own discretion. This is devastating for the rule of law and free speech in the UK. It cannot be tolerated. Now, I'm glad that uh, Big Brother Watch is uh, pushing this out. Um, we're going to have a look at the uh, what Nadine Dorries had to say in one second, but I'm just going to say once again that it's been the UK column that has been pushing this issue for four or five years now. And in fact, this, uh, this opaque Whitehall unit that Big Brother Watch uh, is talking about was set up in 2017, 2018, sorry. Uh, and, and we've been talking about it uh, for the last four years. So um, let's listen to what Nadine Dorries had to say about this in Parliament. Well, our disinformation and misinformation unit is, is working and we've done Everything possible. I mean, I, I know that there have been um, accusations is a strong word, but concerns possibly from the opposition front bench that the disinformation and misinformation unit was was no longer in existence. That's not the case. It's not true. It is there. It is working. We did have a pilot which ran for six months, which stopped. But the work from that pilot now continues with the misinformation and disinformation unit and daily. That work takes place daily, and daily we work to remove that content online, which is both harmful and, particularly when it comes to, to COVID-19 and vaccinations, which is harmful and provides misinformation and disinformation. Daily we have those contacts with the online providers, and the work is ongoing. So the work is ongoing, Patrick, but what I really want to stress here is that this, is, this censorship uh, and narrative management programme was not set up as part of the sort of government's response to COVID-19 or the government's response to anti-vax content. This began, this process began much, much earlier. So let's just have a look at a timeline, just a quick timeline. This is from the UK Column website. It's there if you want to go and have a look at it of when this all began. And of course it began back in 2014 when David Cameron gave a speech to the uh, UN General Assembly uh, where he was talking about uh, the need to control narratives on the internet and so on. Uh, and uh, well, 2017 was is the next sort of major uh, point on this timeline because you know this notion uh, that the tech companies are somehow the enemy of governments or, or the enemy of the people in this they're certainly not the enemy of governments because they've been working with governments for the last since 2017 that's March uh, they published an open letter to Amber Rudd following their meeting with her because Amber Rudd and, uh, and Theresa May, who was the Prime Minister at that time, had invited them into Downing Street for discussions about uh, the fact that their platforms were being used to distribute 
material which the government found uncomfortable. Um, now, we'll run on through uh, these timeline, these uh, items on the timeline. By April, uh, MPs were asking Facebook to tackle fake news. Um, as the, So we were already, of course, the US government narrative about uh, election interference was, and, and that being uh, pushed around through social media was, was part of this. But, uh, uh, and there's Damien Collins, who was at that time was chair of the uh, Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee. And of course, that's the same Damien Collins that if we roll forward to the present day, uh, was recently the chair of the uh, Online Safety Bill Scrutiny Committee. So this man has been absolutely campaigning uh, on the issue of censorship, uh, pro-government censorship for the last four or five years. Um, so let's move on. Uh, and we have Facebook broadening its campaign to raise awareness of fake news. Uh, and they were publishing advertisements in the UK press. Now, lots of people have been attempting to publish uh, advertisements in the UK press talking about uh, the government's response to coronavirus and lockdown and things like this, and have found it very difficult to get advertisements in the UK press, but Facebook, for some reason, didn't really have any trouble at the time. Uh, and then also in May, the G7, uh, so it became an international thing, and it was Britain was pushing this. Uh, they were demanding that uh, the various so-called internet giants uh, crack down on various types of content on the internet. Um, then we have uh, in June, Theresa May, the UK and France, uh, a joint campaign to tackle unacceptable online content. This has been going on for years, largely under the radar and people not really paying attention. Who else is involved? George, George Soros-backed fact checkers uh, joining forces with Google to, to de-platform people from search engines and so on. Uh, and uh, of course, we started to see bans from Twitter of the likes of RT and Sputnik and others. Uh, and then we saw the, the term trust coming into the argu argument. Um, so this is the uh, Marcula Center for Applied Ethical uh, Ethics, uh, establishing the trust project uh, in partnership with various uh, mainstream media organizations. Because if you trust your media organization, you don't have to think for yourself. You just accept what they say. It's not a, this, is, this is a very key part of this pretty insidious scheme. Uh, Home Affairs Select Committee, uh, hearing evidence on online hate from tech companies. This cooperation between government and uh, the, the, and, uh, the um, tech companies has been going on for years, as I say. Theresa May announcing internet regulation, where better than at Davos, because World Economic Forum is a perfect place to be announcing new policies, uh, particularly if they're internationalist policies. Uh, and uh, that was 2018 we're now into, uh, and by March, uh, Matt Hancock was announcing government intervention to, to underpin the mainstream media because their narratives were uh, effectively not, uh, you know, weren't flying terribly well. Um, Theresa May establishes a rapid response unit inside the cabinet office. And this is the uh, body that uh, Nadine Dorries was talking about in that video clip, also known as the uh, fake news unit. Uh, and it was given initially six months of funding um, and it brought together teams of analysts, data scientists, media and digital experts armed with cutting edge software to work around the clock to monitor on online breaking news stories and social media discussion. But more than that, uh, it has been active on social media uh, with sock puppet accounts and so on, attempting to control the narrative. Uh, and uh, I have to say, Patrick also reporting uh, tweets and Facebook posts and YouTube videos that it didn't like to the platforms to get those removed. Um, still in 2018 now, uh, Theresa May announced the rapid response mechanism. Now this is separate from the rapid response unit, and the, but it must be a coincidence that the names are the same and the rapid response mechanism uh, was in agreement with the G7 uh, that any international events that took place, whether it be Russia, Skripal, uh, coronavirus, whatever it happened to be, that there was a common narrative between all the Western nations, all the G7 nations, and they would not uh, Take, you know, move away from that narrative. Uh, and we had uh, the establishment of the executive board for the UK Council for International uh, for Internet Safety. And uh, well, quite an interesting list of people on that. If the text is too small for some people, we've got everything from Apple and the BBC to GCHQ, the Information Commissioner's Office, Microsoft, uh, the NSPCC, Ofcom, uh, and uh, Twitter. Uh, the tech companies, of course, on there, and the Welsh Assembly. Uh, I'm sure the Scottish government was part of this. Indeed, they are. There they are on the list. So uh, quite a, a bit of fusion going on there. Uh, and uh, Facebook hiring full facts, so the fact checkers again coming in. 
what's next? Confirming Theresa May's rapid response unit. This is the one that Nadine Dorries was talking about. This is the Cabinet Office's fake news unit, got permanent funding, and it has been operating uh, so since April 2018. Uh, it's given permanent funding to continue working, monitoring social media and making sure the government narrative appears at the top of search rankings. Um, and of course, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, by April of 2018, we had the online harms white paper, uh, which, of course, was there to inform future legislation. That future legislation uh, is now known as the online safety bill because harm isn't quite as an emotive word, perhaps, as safety. We all recognize safety. We want to feel safe. So we're bringing a bill in to make everybody feel safe online. That, uh, but in fact, it is all about disinformation. So if you want to know more about the uh, rapid response unit in the cabinet office, uh, then have a look at this article, which uh, was published in February 2019. Uh, Beyond Integrity Initiative, the scale of UK government counter disinformation. Uh, and uh, that will give you a, a, an idea of, uh, of what's going on. And if you want, would like to share that article, that would be uh, very much appreciated because it is really important that people understand uh, what this is all about. Uh, and uh, the uh, Rapid Response Unit had this lady as their head uh, at the time. She left the role in 2019. Um, so here she is, Fiona Barbeck, and uh, how the Rapid Response Unit actually works and why it's important if you want to get the government's view on uh, what it was really about. Uh, have a look at this article on PR Week. But uh, I put her on screen uh, because she left the role in 2019. I went off to this. Bartosz. Uh, Bartosz, sorry, yes. I apologize for that. Uh, I went, uh, went off to this organization, uh, Consulum. Um, so I wonder what they are. Well, they call themselves a specialist government strategic communications consultancy, consultancy that uses an in-depth understanding of public, economic, and political drivers to provide impact impactful strategic counsel and meet complex communications challenges. Uh, uh, boil that down to one word, Mike. Propaganda. propaganda. Yeah, yes. That's what it is. Uh, fancy, it's a fancy description for outsourcing your propaganda to some high-fluting privatized consortium. Uh, so one of the, well, in this case, it was uh, one of the major contracts they had in the last couple of years was about £50 million pounds worth uh, to, to reinvent the Hong Kong government. Uh, and uh, deal, you know, produce propaganda which would deal with the protests that were going on in Hong Kong at the time. It's an extension of statecraft, basically. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, I just also want to highlight this article once again from Ian Davis, uh, the Online Safety Act, an act of betrayal on the UK column website at the moment. Also share this because this has also got key information about this whole, uh, this whole sort of policy and where it's going to take us. Big Brother Watch was absolutely right. This has to be stopped. And unless people engage with the issue, of course, it won't be stopped. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to just, at the end this segment, make this point. This is not just a UK thing. Uh, certainly, the EU is producing legislation at EU level on this as well. So uh, if you're in the EU, you need to have, be having a look at the Digital Services Act. I'm not sure what the situation is in the United States at the moment, because I haven't seen any particular announcement of forthcoming legislation on that. It may be that the US is much a much harder uh, market, as it were, for this type of thing, Patrick, because uh, uh, because uh, of the, 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 the freedom of speech protections within the Constitution. Yeah, and, all, and also just you, there is there is a limit uh, to how much clandestine activity the government can actually get away with, including with uh, private corporations like this. I mean, they do collusion. They are coordinating on some things, but but the rule of law still uh, it, it holds some sway in the United States. I'm wondering, does it actually exist here? No, it doesn't. That's the question. It doesn't. So I think that's, that's, that's a very good question. That's what people should be concerned about. Okay, so, uh, but of course, in the meantime, uh, as I say, the tech companies are absolutely on board with this whole policy and, uh, well, next generation of censorship, perhaps. Sure. Well, here's the next level of uh, censorship here. This is uh, T-Mobile, big mobile phone uh, provider. Sorry, we'll go back there. Uh, next level censorship. So they're basically erasing hyperlinks from certain websites, from text messages uh, on some of the U.S networks here. This is the Gateway Pundit. Uh, this is one of the highest trafficked websites in the United States. It's definitely in the top 250 uh, nationwide, which is quite an elite club uh, to be in. 
Uh, so millions of uh, unique visitors every day. Uh, so they've been basically blacklisted here by this, uh, uh, this company, T-Mobile. And so here's the article. And if you go to this article, you'll see uh, they do provide uh, uh, quite a few examples here. Uh, this is Jim Hoff. He's the editor-in-chief of uh, the Gateway Pundit, and he provides quite a bit of forensic evidence here. Uh, these are different readers who have sent in uh, different screenshots from the sender and the receiver, and you can see there's missing the Gateway Pundit URLs. He's given about four or five different examples of this. Right. So it seems to be a legitimate phenomenon, according to this article here in the Gateway Pundit. So if that is the case, and it is, if it's that widespread, this is hugely, hugely uh, worrying, uh, and people should pay very close attention to this. Uh, because it, you know, one of the items on the UK column censorship timeline was the, the, the point at which WhatsApp decided that they were going to limit distribution of certain information. So they were going to, you, know, you weren't going to be able to distribute a URL to more than, I can't remember what it was, five people at a time. That's probably not quite correct. But nonetheless, there had been an unlimited number of, of people that you could CC a, a, a link to, and then they restricted that. And but now we're seeing that brought down to the one to one level because to the SMS level. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Peer to peer. Yes. So the, what, what this should tell people is the capabilities are there to do that level of micromanagement of, of banning, shadow banning, of completely wiping or sanitizing certain information sources uh, from the Internet. And by the way, there's also the uh, the attack on DNS um, in the, at the UN level. Uh, banning, and they do this for terrorism, of course, but it does show you that the capability is there. For sure. So yes. so what, what these governments and everything that you just showed, if you can boil that down to just a few uh, key points, is that this is about narrative management. This is about keeping any competing narratives from getting any traction in the public. This is absolute totalitarianism. It is not about safety. It is not about protecting the children. We already have laws and legislations against that police are already doing and have been doing uh, investigations ongoing for decades yes. on that already. So where is all this coming from? This is absolutely a Trojan horse. There's no question about it. Yes. And the government is being very sneaky and very disingenuous and very deceptive in how they're cloaking this effort. And this is a huge effort. You mentioned the trusted pro the trust, trust project, project, the trusted news initiative. This is all of these companies in America, Silicon Valley, mainstream media coming on board basically to censor uh, anything that uh, they find to be problematic on any of these platforms uh, with regards to COVID-19, misinformation, disinformation. These politicians can't even define the difference between misinformation and disinformation, partly because one of those terms was invented by Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union. To, be, to what? To shut down anybody who's criticizing him. Mm. Okay, that's where that term comes from. And we have our elected officials in democratic countries using a Stalinist invention in order to shut down free speech. I mean, the irony, the irony, it, it's dripping. We, we might bring the word refusenik in at this point because this is the same kind of, uh, we're pulling terms out of Soviet Russia. Exactly. And, and we're applying them to anybody that's... Uh, producing any kind of kind of narrative and as i say this is something that began well before covid so this is not about a, this is not about covid this is about uh, anybody criticizing uh, you know taking an anti-war position mm. uh, on russia uh, any you know, anybody that's that's counter narrative on china or on uh, uh, scripals or any any kind of uh, major talking point that the government has been pushing forward you mentioned there april in your timeline april 2018 the yes. syria Bombing. Right. This is uh, the alleged chemical weapons attack sure. in Duma, right? At that point, our, our website was taken offline. That's 21st century. 21st war. century yeah. war was taken, forced offline in a massive DDoS attack that lasted for five days. Mm -hmm. And it, we weren't the only one. There were other uh, uh, Syrian uh, news uh, sources and international news sources that were also taken down at the exact same time. That is a takedown of whole websites. Mm -hmm. It happened to us. And it happened to a bunch of other mm. websites that we, uh, Fort Rust News, right. for instance, and Marsalian uh, as well. So, I mean, this this was a targeted attack at that exact time yeah. that that initiative was was being created. Was being created. Yes. So, so they, they don't they don't want you 
to challenge the narrative. They want their propaganda to have total domination of the information space. And basically, this is hiding criminality, and this is basically covering up uh, corruption and crimes of state. That's all it is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I hate to bring Nazi Germany into it once again, but if I remember rightly, one of the first things Hitler did was to, to, to absolutely shut down any, any uh, opposition newspapers at the time. Sure, he did. But Abraham Lincoln did the same thing. Oh, did he? Right. During the Civil War, <laughs> shut down 50 newspapers uh, in the United States. So, listen, there's pedigree. This has happened before, yes. but we're selective in, in, in the ones that we we might remember. Yeah, okay. Right, uh, let's move on then. And uh, well, here's the BBC uh, and COVID. Armed forces send 200 personnel to support NHS in London. So uh, quite a uh, range of articles in the mainstream press today about the, the stresses of the NHS because the number of NHS uh, staff going sick or, or taking time off at the moment has reached over 120,000. Um, and uh, they're claiming, or the mainstream press is saying, that most of, uh, or at least half of that is due to COVID. Um, so because there's 120,000 staff off, the government has decided to send 200 military personnel in to make uh, to fill up the shortfall. That makes sense, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Perfect so, sense. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, but what is the actual situation? Because, of course, when you uh, look at what the mainstream press is saying, they're saying that uh, 120,000 staff off, half of them off, due to COVID, but actually they, they're not saying how many of them have tested positive for COVID, even if that mattered. Um, they're actually, it's actually a bit of a pandemic situation going on here because it's, it's also people who've been in contact with people that have uh, tested positive for COVID, right? So, But more than that, look, look at this, 200 personnel. Do you know how many healthcare workers work in London? Just in London, out of the NHS. Well, I mean, the, hundreds of thousands, a few hundred thousand, or you know, it's it's a huge amount, right? Yeah. Two hundred is nothing. This is a symbolic move again to show that the military can be deployed yes. in a domestic setting. One hundred percent. This is that trend we've seen so many examples of this, haven't we, since the beginning of the yes. pandemic? So out of that two hundred, uh, there are forty medics, uh, and the rest are uh, support staff. So the uh, the four, there's going to be 40 teams of five, each comprised of one medic and four soldiers who are going to assist uh, doctors and nurses as appropriate. Uh, and that's going to make a massive difference with 120,000 people missing. Um, okay, now uh, let's have a look at this because uh, I was sent this this morning by Emma. Thank you very much, Emma. She said, good morning. Uh, just listening to the BBC Today program at around two minutes to 9 a.m. as interesting discussion relating to sports and the V word being vaccines. Uh, well, one interviewee, Carol Shanahan of Port Vale Football Club, which I think has a player who doesn't want to take the vaccine, uh, started saying there was uh, justification for sports people being concerned due to the collapses and heart problems uh, showing up. Not surprisingly, as she did, so the line, quotes, broke up and she was cut off. This happens all the time on the BBC. You can almost predict it. Thanks for all you're doing, Emma. Well, actually, it was worse than that, Emma, wasn't it? Because I, I, I did hear that segment. Um, and uh, uh, Carol Shanahan didn't just talk about uh, collapses and heart problems. She talked about deaths as well. And then suddenly the uh, line problems uh, happened. Uh, and then what happened was the uh, other uh, guest, the sort of counter guest, uh, who, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, apologies for that, um, actually came in and said, well, these heart problems, these collapses, these deaths are being caused by long COVID. Uh, and that long COVID is the major problem. And uh, so the uh, the fact that the line uh, broke, as it were, uh, gave the other person the opportunity to get in a, a counter narrative. And then unfortunately, uh, Carol Shannon didn't really get a chance to speak after that at all. So- They're so skillful, aren't they? They are so skillful at this. Uh, and, and it's they... so rare, the, uh, the, the heart conditions, the myocarditis, it's so rare, we're told. Nothing to see here. Nothing it's to just see at rare. all. It happens all the time. Every day now, it's so rare. So uh, now, Boris, in his little speech, we didn't show the bit, but he went on later on to talk about how Britain was going to continue to do things on a voluntary basis. That in the EU, we're seeing uh, countries uh, do things using coercion. Um, in the United States, of course, there was the attempt to get a federal mandate through. That seems to have collapsed on its face. But nonetheless, some uh, of the big employers are still continuing to push forward with that type of thing? Yeah, it's still being fought in the courts, on a number of courts. It, I mean, the, the, the district court re recently pushed back Biden's federal mandate. Again, here's United Airlines here, 
and this is the CEO. Uh, he's a total vaccine fanatic, Scott Kirby, CEO of United uh, Airlines. And what's he pushing here? Well, let's just take a look at this story. A bit of good journalism here by Breitbart News. This is an actual exclusive. United Airlines outsources work to potentially unvaccinated uh, London flight attendants to cover for all the vaccinated, which they sacked, or sorry, unvaccinated, which they sacked for not getting the vaccine. So let me understand this. United Airlines sacked their own staff yes. for being unvaccinated, and instead they employed unvaccinated uh, British That's flight right. attendants. That's Be right, because Britain's not uh, under the auspices of any uh, mandates uh -huh. at the government level, so right. it doesn't fall foul of any... Uh, rules or, or legislation or human rights, whatever wow. here. So this, obviously, that could change in America as these court cases go to the Supreme Court. And it will be heard in the Supreme Court, by the way, uh, in the next few months. That's right. already in motion. But in the meantime, this is what's going on here. This is a very interesting, potentially big precedent here. 2,000 unvaccinated U.S.-based employees, including 900 cabin crew. That's very important because this is also going to determine how many flights they can put in the air, mm. who obtained religious or medical exemptions, were placed on unpaid leave in the name of safety. And uh, Scott Kirby did not allow them to have a negative test option, mm. which even some federal contractors are now doing because they're backpedaling because Biden's vaccine mandate is falling to pieces by the week. So they're now uh, extending the deadlines, they're pushing it back, they're offering negative test options. United's not having any of that. So basically, uh, they want to run their business into the ground. Uh, and it goes on here. Breitbart News obtained several schedule logs showing London-based flight attendants scheduled to fly uh, with the Newark-based, Newark, New Jersey-based crew in late December, early January. So the, these employees are not subject to Kirby's corporate vaccine mandate, which he's, he's putting a vaccine mandate down. He's because he thinks he's complying with some federal diktat that doesn't actually exist. Right. So again, this is a blag by the federal government and all the co companies, and especially the woke companies, they all fell into line and basically capitulated. So this means, yeah, so if they're using agency staff, for instance, or they're hiring from the UK, who knows, go hire from another country, Romania, yeah. or even from Germany. Um, so it, it won't, it, they might be able to get around this in different loopholes. Mm. So this is what's going on here. But this is the UK, Ireland. I'm not sure. But uh, so and so that's what's going on in the airline side. So this is causing flight delays. You've got the uh, lots of issues with pilots as well. Mm. Same sort of thing. Ground crew, engineering, and so forth. So they're really shooting themselves in the foot. Why would a business do that? What unless is there a bigger uh, a bigger agenda at work there. Is there a um, bigger agenda at play to, to, to deep six the entire uh, affordable passenger airline industry globally? Oh, let me think. Uh, Davos? It seems to World be, World Economic yeah. Forum? Sure. Green yeah. New Deal? It certainly looks like it, yeah. Right. Mark Carney's definitely smiling yes. at these sort of situations. Because guess what's happening? Fewer flights, prices are going up, up yeah. not down. Uh, so, in, you know, th that's what's happening on the airline side. So yeah. is, 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 is this a good thing? It, probably not. Not if you like to travel or if you like to visit your family or go on vacation or explore the planet. Mm. This isn't generally not a good development. Right. Uh, which brings us on to schools then and uh, sticking in the United States. So, again, uh, this sort of things are falling apart here. The Los Angeles Unified School District. Uh, they had a vaccine mandate. This is the biggest school district in the United States, but they had to cancel it because 30,000 kids did not comply. So they were supposed to send these kids home for remote learning, segregate them, punish them for not, the families for not having the vaccine. And they basically capitulated. Right. So that's, uh, that's, that's what's happened uh, here. Yeah. Well, look, uh, uh, in the UK then, uh, the issue of non-compliance uh, is becoming a, a problem with respect to masks because, of course, uh, school children in the UK are required to, well, they're, it's a recommendation at the moment that they, they wear masks. Uh, so let's have a look at what uh, Nadim Zahawi, the Education Secretary, also known as Anton LaVey, had to say. Uh, he said masks in school help reduce transmission at a time when rates of infection are high. Um, and he cited uh, a, a particular Department for Education report, uh, and it was this one. Uh, the evidence summary here, coronavirus and the use of face coverings in education settings. 
Um, but unfortunately, uh, this report doesn't quite say that uh, what he was suggesting. Um, it's quite the opposite, actually. So anyway, 123 schools taking part in this uh, in this survey and this uh, uh, evidence gathering exercise. Um, and uh, so this is what they had to say. Uh, there is a level of statistical uncertainty around the results. Um, the analysis is non-peer-reviewed and with current sample size shows a non-statistical and unknown clinical significance, significant reduction in the, infect, in the infection in short, sorry, in infection in a short follow-up period, including that a false positive, i.e. Find, finding that face covering saw reduced absence uh, when the finding is actually by chance, uh, would emerge around 50% of the time. Uh, and they say that a 5% threshold is widely used to declare statistical significance in academic literature. So uh, they, the, the study showed that uh, uh, COVID absence rate fell from 5.3% in October uh, to 3% in the third week of October. So on the 1st of October to 3% in the third week of October, which was a, a 2.3% percentage point drop uh, for schools where masks were used. Uh, and in schools that didn't use masks, the average COVID absence rate fell from 5.3% to 3.6%, a fall of 1.7 percentage points. So between masked and unmasked, uh, the difference was 2.3 percentage points versus 1.7 percentage points, which is just statistically insignificant. It's, it, it is. It's, so, so there was no evidence in this report whatsoever uh, that masks make any difference. Uh, and so Zahawi's a bit uh, desperate there. Uh, to suggest that, that it was uh, uh, providing evidence to support uh, mask wearing. In the meantime, as I say, um, big concerns among some people that children are just ignoring the recommendation. No, and I, I didn't make this point with the LA school district story. So uh, now people are realizing that the remote learning is not a good idea. So on the issue of masks, or on the issue of should they keep schools open if there's a COVID test positive or something like this. Sure. In Chicago, the te and the teachers unions have gone on strike to close the schools. Yes. This is a big story uh, in America. And so, and, and now the, the Democratic mayor has changed sides. She's now saying, open the schools, go back. Let's learn to live with COVID. So they're all, there's a lot of volt face going on now. Mm. But the unions, they want the kids masked. They want the schools closed. They, and, and the teachers are only checking in like three times a week on some of these things. I mean, they've destroyed uh, the education of these children mm. and pushed them back two or three years now. They will never, ever, ever recover. recover. Yeah. Never. And this is, this is going to affect a whole generation in the most negative way and the country, by the way. Okay, so that's the unions. And is the, is the government, is the Biden, the Democratic uh, government, are they saying anything challenging these unions? No. No, they're not, because they are beholden. Every single one of those congressmen and senators from the Democratic side are beholden to the teachers' union because they're the biggest donors. Right. Okay, so look at what a mess they have made of education with their COVID hysteria and with their masks. And I dare say there's some similar uh, trends uh, in this country that we've seen over oh, the yes. last two years as yes. well. Yeah. And it, it, I think it's it's, it's painting the teachers' unions in a very bad light long term. I mean, teachers used to be regarded as uh, this kind of, you know, uh, almost saint-like saint status within society. And now they've really gone down a rung or two mm. uh, because of the pandemic. And so, again, not caring about the children, actually, and caring more about politics or caring more about their own sort of uh, crazed hysteria. Uh, you know, caught up in the pandemic. I mean, this is just a sad commentary on where society is at right now. Um, right. Okay, well, let's move to Australia then. And of course, everybody will have been following the, the Novak Djokovic uh, visa story. Um, so uh, the BBC this morning answering a question I've been wondering for the last couple of days, because of course, Djokovic arrived in Australia uh, and uh, he was held in uh, isolation for a while at the airport. And then he's been put in a quarantine hotel and what wasn't really clear to me whether that was because there was some effort going on to, uh, to sort the problem out or was it because Australia was uh, holding him effectively holding him captive as some kind of vindictive revenge for uh, for attempting to get into the country uh, unvaccinated 
it, it wasn't clear to me what that was. But anyway, the BBC is now reporting that Australia, the Australian government are saying that he's not being held captive. He's not being held captive. He's held in immigration detention. Yes. So whatever that means, it's a bit of doublespeak there. Yes. But, uh, now, the Daily Mail over the last couple of days had some pretty uh, horrible uh, articles on, uh, on Djokovic, uh, really attempting to discredit him personally. Mm. Uh, but uh, what about support from, from other tennis players? Has well, he had any? I might add that another female uh, Czech uh, tennis player her name is Renata uh, Vorakova. She has, her visa has also been cancelled, uh, I believe, for the same reason right. that she hasn't had the experimental uh, gene jab uh, as, as Djokovic hasn't. So she's also had her thing revoked. I mean, I was under the understanding that he had already negotiated that visa in advance. And that's why he came. So they, he arrived and was given it and then it was revoked. Is that correct? Well, the excuse seemed to be, uh, and whether this is correct or not, I'm not entirely sure, but, but the excuse seemed to be that there was an agreement with the Victorian authorities and, and then it was overridden by the, uh, the national government. So, so what exactly happened there, whether it was just confusion or a mistake or, or whether it was a, a, an intentional, uh, uh, you know, situation developed, you know, built, by the government to, to, in Australia to sort of highlight uh, an issue? I don't know. No, the biggest fear for them is that he would end up winning the tournament, being the only unvaccinated player. Yeah, so okay. they, they yeah, couldn't handle that. So his his compatriots or his sorry, his cohort in the uh, tennis world, uh, Rafael Nadal, this is another uh, tennis player, top-ranked tennis player, um, and this is what he has to say about Djokovic and the vaccine issue. I believe in one in what the the people who knows about uh, medicine says, and if the people say that we need to get vaccinated, uh, we need to get we need to get the vaccine. That's that's my point of view. You know, I went through the COVID. I I have been uh, vaccinated twice, uh, and if if you do this, uh, you don't have any problem to to play here. And uh, that's the only clear thing. And the rest of the things I don't want to, to have or to give uh, to you an opinion that I, I don't have the whole information. The only for me clear thing is if you are vaccinated, you can play in the Australian Open and everywhere. And the world, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, have been suffering enough to not follow the rules. I think he shrugged his shoulders about eight times yeah. during that short segment. So he doesn't know what he's talking about and uh, just kind of repeating the script. Uh, he's almost like a, a really good, loyal propaganda vehicle. Well, maybe that's a little hard. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe he actually doesn't want to, you know, there are implications for his career if he if he stands of up. Of course. And so, so it may be a bit of that as well. I mean, that, that may be criticizable but but uh, well, we'll see in the long run this agenda could deep six their whole uh, uh sport yes like it's ruining other sports as well so they might be sort of sowing the seeds of their own demise by going with this uber compliance over the top compliance we didn't have a photograph that of it was roger federer rafa nadal trevor noah and bill gates uh, uh, posing for a photo we forgot to include that so he is friends with bill gates Rafael Nadal. So I don't know if that has anything to do with his his position there, but who knows? Uh, now uh, on Wednesday we we mentioned uh, Emmanuel Macron and the the language that he was using with respect to uh, non vaccinated uh, people. Um, and uh, uh, well, you've highlighted a, another aspect of this on Twenty First Century Wire here: uh, the non citizen part of it. He's calling the uh, unvaccinated non citizens, and of course, yes, vowing to piss them off etc but non-citizens so depersoning them as well that's a little bit uh, next level yes well uh you know of course uh, britain has uh, uh legislation uh, in, in place uh <clears throat> just cough if you need to <coughs> uh britain has legislation in place uh to, to uh, or not quite in place it's on its way uh to uh to deal with this uh, issue of citizenship uh, with respect to immigration, and we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit more in the in the coming days and weeks. But uh, uh, for him to use the term non-citizens uh, for 
you know, a section of his own society is uh, is quite uh, extreme. Now, uh, let's uh, let's move on a little bit here. Um, and uh, well, we'll just say if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, uh, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to uh, help us out there. And as we've said before, if you are watching uh, UK column for free uh, and you like uh, what we do, then we do need your financial support and that'll be very, very much appreciated. Uh, and also do share our material that you see on the various platforms. Um, we uh, still have hoodies for sale. If you're interested in, um, in uh, getting one of those, please uh, do so. Uh, it's still pretty cold outside. Now, uh, let's move on to Kazakhstan. Uh, and uh, this was the BBC this morning. Kazakhstan unrest, troops ordered to fire without warning. Uh, and uh, of course, this has become a big story, a big anti-Russian story. Uh, and the BBC uh, really highlighting it uh, in their own style, as they usually do. Uh, now, Mark Ammon, the historian, was pushing this out on Twitter uh, a couple of days ago. Ka Kazakhstan's current protests should remind us that the new coined Chevalier of Human Rights, Tony Blair, helped the regime to cover up repression there in the past. And he cites two uh, Guardian articles. Um, so here we go. Uh, this is the first one, or sorry, he highlights a Guardian article and also a Mail article. So here's the Guardian article. Tony Blair advises Kazakh president on publicity after killing of protesters. Uh, and this involved 25 protesters uh, that were shot by the Kazakhstan uh, authorities. Uh, so Tony Blair advises Kazakh president on publicity. Uh, is that what he was doing? It's not entirely clear. But he then subsequently sent uh, Alistair Campbell to Kazakhstan uh, to do whatever Alistair Campbell does in the country. Again, what actually was he doing? We're not entirely sure, but what we are entirely sure about, uh, you can find out if you have a look at the UK column website and this article from Brian Gerrish, uh, BBC Media Actions, a version from Broadcasting House to Kazakhstan. Uh, and uh, so what was being highlighted here was that the BBC Media Action Amongst other countries, I mean, Kazakhstan's only one of the countries that uh, BBC Media Action has, uh, has uh, targeted. Um, they were using, uh, supporting the Marshall Plan for the Mind, facilitating a British-style social, social realist soap opera, uh, and it was called Crossroads to Kazakhstan. Uh, and according to Ruth Mendel, who uh, analysed the initiative, uh, she said making of Crossroads to Kazakhstan was informed by the assumption that the medium of television is an appropriate tool to further the logical and inevitable transition to a capitalist free market economy, transforming the national imagination in the process, doing much more, of course, because the type of agendas that they were pushing into this uh, were, were you know, the typical Western uh, agendas. Crossroads was conceived uh, as an elaboration of the BBC, of a BBC Marshall Plan for the Mind uh, radio soap opera in Russia based on the Archers format uh, and was funded through know-how funds supported by the government's Overseas Development Administration and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. It was produced by the private London-based production company, Portobello Media. Um, so uh, that article, very, very important if you want to go understand a little bit about what's going on in Kazakhstan at the moment, because the question is, is it similar to what happened to Ukraine a few years ago? Is it a color revolution that's being run through Western NGOs and so on? Um, and uh, uh, you know, we have quite a number of Western NGOs working in Kazakhstan, and Kazakhstan massively close to Russia, uh, and any country which has been or is massively close to Russia is being actively interfered. In fact, Russia itself being actively interfered uh, with by uh, Western open society type organizations. Yes, yeah, not only that, um, uh, Kazakhstan is very, very important geopolitically for Central Asia, the position of it, and the size of it as well. And Right, and uh, okay, so uh, let's uh, just quickly have a look at this. Uh, and this is uh, Syrian analysis. So I think it came out today, possibly yesterday. Uh, a coup attempt in Kazakhstan. Uh, and this is Kavor Kalmasian speaking to Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos. Uh, and thanks to uh, our viewer that, uh, that uh, highlighted this for me. So, so what are they saying? Uh, well, Marcus Papadopoulos saying, uh, Kazakhs do not regard Russians as outsiders. The closeness between Kazakhs uh, and Russians can be described as a fraternal bond that cannot be broken. Over 90% of the electorate of the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic voted to preserve the USSR, for example. And he went on to say, 
It's all been engineered and strategically to strategically destabilize Russia and bring about a coup in Kazakhstan. Peaceful protesters did not take over government buildings, etc. Well, the key point is they seem to have lots of AK-47s to hand. Um, and uh, and the question is, uh, where did they get their training and their, their equipment and so on? So I don't know what your thoughts are. Um, I don't really have much to say about that other than this does uh, follow uh, patterns that we're uh, very familiar with in other countries. Yes. Uh, okay, so we'll we'll do more on that, uh, no doubt, in the coming days and weeks as it as it develops. Uh, next of all, we've got the mail here, uh, and the the headline is because uh, since since we mentioned Tony Blair and respect to to uh, uh, with with respect to uh, uh, Kazakhstan, let's talk about Tony Blair a bit, bit more. So uh, the headline is IRA victims anger at honor for Sir Tony Blair. Former Prime Minister is slammed over his secret deal to provide effective amnesty to murderers as part of Northern Ireland peace talks. Well, uh, okay, you can slam, we can slam Tony Blair for this uh, once again uh, as a result of the publicity over his, uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, garter that he's been awarded. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this really should have been highlighted a bit more effectively by the mainstream press uh, whenever Dennis Hutchings was uh, in Belfast on trial. Uh, because the key point here, of course, is that uh, Tony Blair did give letters of amnesty to uh, IRA uh, members who had committed uh, criminal acts, murders, and so on uh, during the Troubles, but he did not give similar amnesty to uh, uh, British soldiers that were operating uh, in very difficult circumstances at the time. If you want to know more about this, uh, Dennis Hutchings, of course, uh, died as a result of, not really as a result of, of uh, of the court case, which certainly didn't contribute. He had uh, stage four cancer and so on, but the court case really was the, the thing that, that uh, uh, put him over the, 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 the boundary, as it were, because uh, the pressure of it was unbelievable. But nonetheless, if you want to know a little bit more about uh, Dennis, Dennis Hutchings and his thoughts on the, the Northern Ireland uh, prosecutions, which continue, by the way, uh, have a look at uh, David Ellis' report, Lawfare, on the UK Column website. So where are we with the change.org uh, petition? Uh, well, a couple of hours ago, it was literally a hair's breadth away from the one million mark. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Patrick. Of course, one million people came out on the streets in 2003, uh, and uh, Tony Blair ignored that. Do, do you think this is uh, having a, any effect on him? Uh, or is he just going to give it a good ignoring like uh, every other criticism he's ever received? Well, in the world of deep state uh, politics, uh, no bad deed goes unrewarded. And so... Uh... I think the establishment need to give him, need, this needs to stand, this award yes. needs to stand in order to set an example to future uh, criminals and stooges that they will be rewarded uh, if they step over the line and yes. basically throw their country and their people under the bus. Okay, uh, now, United States again, uh, Patrick, and uh, well, it's January the 6th anniversary. Yes, it is. It's the one-year anniversary of this solemn event, apparently. Uh, this is the, the riot on January 6th last year, the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Uh, here is the uh, candlelight vigil. This is the Congress. There's Nancy Pelosi here for the fallen. Uh, un unfortunately, nobody died uh, uh, during this. Uh, only person who died was a Trump, unarmed Trump supporter named Ashley Babbitt, who was assassinated uh, by a Secret Service agent, which nobody wants to talk about. And there's been no hearing about there's one police officer named Brian Sicknick who died uh, after he was on duty for unrelated uh, health issues. Okay, so they're, they're just really hamming this up, this event, and trying to basically frame it like it was some seminal moment in U.S. history, like it was on par with other great dates that would live in infamy, if you know what I mean. Yes. Uh, so we have a little bit of video. We do. Uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both gave these solemn speeches about the uh, January 6th event. Let's listen to Biden first, and, uh, and we'll hear from the vice president. But go ahead and roll this uh, Joe Biden clip. But I also know that our darkest days can lead to light and hope. From the death and destruction, as the vice president referenced in Pearl Harbor, came the triumph over the forces of fascism. From the brutality of Bloody Sunday on the Edmund Pettus Bridge came historic voting rights legislation. 
So now let's step up, write the next chapter in American history. Well, well, Patrick, I have to say, I think it's really despicable to conflate Bloody Sunday with in Birmingham with with uh, with what happened on January sixth. These were not the same events. No, you can see that it's just, it's just they're so shameless in their demagoguery, and they'll do anything to try to make their political uh, point. So, not to be outdone, here is the uh, vice president Kamala Harris currently sporting a twenty. Uh, eight percent approval rating. Listen to what she has to say about the January sixth event. Certain dates echo throughout history, including dates that instantly remind all who have lived through them where they were and what they were doing when our democracy came under assault. Dates that occupy not only a place on our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941, September 11th, 2001, and January 6th, 2021. What the extremists who roamed these halls targeted was not only the lives of elected leaders, what they sought to degrade and destroy was not only a building, hallowed as it is. What they were assaulting were the institutions, the values, the ideals that generations of Americans have marched, picketed, and shed blood to establish and defend. So we thought it was just poignant to juxtapose the footage of, of what was going on there and, uh, yeah, taking selfies. And so how can you compare this to Pearl Harbor? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Or 9-11. How can anyone take these people seriously? Here's some footage here. Again, the close-up of, uh, of you know, they're coming into the Capitol building last year. Look. Yeah, it's they, a real riot there, isn't it? I know. They're taking selfies. And, like, you see how they're staying within the ropes? So... <laughs> as a tourist would when they're, they're getting guided tours. I mean, to, to compare this to uh, call it a terrorist attack is kind of ridiculous. But we've explained in previous shows, Mike, and many other people who are doing a good job in journalism have explained how the protests outside this building were allowed to happen and how a lot of the uh, 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 violence was driven by FBI informants. Yeah. That is beyond any debate. But the media basically are ignoring that when they're talking about this story. And certainly the politicians are just going to lie through their teeth and omit anything that undermines their sort of demagogue dream narrative. Yeah. Yes. So where does that take us? Uh, it takes us to the uh, office of the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, has come out swinging on January 6th. He released this statement here, and he's basically pulling no punches uh, at all. There's the... There's the Donald. He's basically talking about this is, uh, I'll just read one, one line here. Uh, they're the ones who tried to stop the peaceful transfer with a rigged election. <laughs> Look at the numbers. Does anybody really think Biden beat Obama with the black population, select swing state cities, but nowhere else, et cetera? He's talking about their, they, they, they spread a web of lies, the Democrats, about me uh, in, in Russia for four years to try to overturn the 2016 election. And now they lie that they uh, interfered, didn't interfere in the 2020 election. Big tech was used illegally. These, look, you can debate about whether you agree with that, but uh, there's, there's lots of factual evidence that substantiate that statement there, right. especially the last pit. Big tech in Silicon Valley, Facebook, Twitter, were actively involved in swinging the result of the election. So that's abs absolute election interference by some of the most powerful communications companies in the world. Right. So that's what you've got going on there. And just he went on to say here, and this was another uh, follow-up to that. So this statement's available online. You can go and just Google this statement by Trump on January uh, 6th here. He's just talking about how Biden is a complete failure. Everything he touches turns to failure. Uh, that's what you get when you have a rigged election. Trump continued, I mean, this is just going to drive 
the mainstream liberal media completely bonkers uh, because Trump hasn't accepted the narrative. He hasn't capitulated. Yeah. So he's basically lie. He's been lying low. He's been deplatformed, and now he's basically come out and he's just declared war basically. So he's not giving up on the uh, the, the the point that the election was rigged or there was widespread election fraud. Certainly, there's a lot of evidence uh, that that points to that as as actual fact. Um. Just to criticize Trump a little bit here, um, he's saying there, everything that Biden touches turns to fear. That's that's what you get when you have a, a rigged election. But actually, that's what we got with Donald Trump as well, didn't we? Because because if you look at how the, the Trump administration ran for four years and you look at how the Biden administration is running at the moment, we see a president uh, and we see infrastructure run, for example, the Secretary of State. And in Trump's case, his Secretary of State was doing whatever the hell he wanted to do. Uh, and Trump didn't seem to be able to get him to come on the agenda, whatever agenda Trump had. Biden, the same kind of thing, uh, mentioned, you know, behaving like a warmonger. Um, and and or is that on or is that unfair? Do you think? But it seems to me, look at, as an outside as a, an outsider looking in, that we're seeing this similar type of of a, a president here who's ineffectual and isn't really capable of doing so, very much with with an out of control State Department. Sure, I mean. It, it, to say that Donald Trump's administration wasn't dysfunctional, of course it was, but you had the deep state, you had the CIA, you had the FBI, you had the DOJ, everyone was gunning for him, right. basically. And they did put up a fake story that Russia helped him get elected, and they ran with that for four plus years. Yeah. So there is a big difference. The Democratic administration is much more cohesive. Biden's just a figurehead. Trump, Trump tried to be an executive, wasn't successful. Uh, so you can you can debate the details of that, but yeah. So yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, move on then uh, to uh, uh, Glenn Maxwell, and uh, here is uh, Matthew Russell Lee's newsletter, and uh, this is quite a good article if anybody wants to have a look at it. So that, so the the question is mistrial uh, after Maxwell's uh, verdict. Chatty juror triggers U.S. redacted request for a hearing in a month. Um, so basically, what seems to be going on here is, and it did occur to me at the time, uh, that it was unusual for jurors, you can tell me, Patrick, whether it is, but it seemed unusual that a juror would suddenly uh, have their face plastered all over the mainstream press. So here, for example, is the uh, the Daily Mail exclusive. Glenn was a predator as guilty as Epstein. Maxwell, a juror, describes the moment he locked eyes with sex trafficker and reveals own abuse ordeal. And further on down the article, he's the article's plastered with, uh, well, let's just have a look at one of them, uh, with images of this guy, video clips of statements that he's made and so on. Um, and uh, and here's the uh, Independent, the same kind of thing. Glenn Maxwell, juror breaks silence to the Independent. This verdict is for the victims. Uh, well, more information seems to be coming out about uh, this particular juror. Uh, so uh, Bloomberg uh, this morning, Glenn Maxwell, juror who could upend conviction works for Carlisle Group. Um, so uh, he, uh, uh, well, you know, he was talking about uh, his victimhood as his, uh, claiming to be a sex abuse uh, uh, survivor as a child uh, during the court case, or at least during the, uh, the, the, the consideration of, of the verdict uh, with other members of the uh, jury. Um, and uh, so uh, the, the, here is the, the, the next thing. Um, the Times and the New York Times, I think it was, that broke this story in the first place. A second juror was also claims to be abused. But the problem was that in the pretrial uh, form that they had to fill in for whether they were suitable to be a juror or not, there was a section on that which, sent, which clearly asked, have you been a victim of uh, historic child sexual abuse? Uh, now, uh, this uh, gentleman, the first juror, Scotty David, as he's known in the press, uh, denied remembering that such a, a section appeared on that form. Um, and uh, so he denies remembering that. But the fact of the matter is, it has been widely reported that it, it, it was there. So did he lie? Uh, and the question then is, uh, was he actually placed in that jury um, in order to get this result? It does seem very strange that somebody uh, doesn't, isn't quite accurate on the, on the the form and therefore manages to get themselves selected on a jury for a trial, and then before you know it, you know within a day or two of the of the verdict, uh, they're plastered all over the media on both sides of the Atlantic. 
it is a perfect storm. It is a perfect storm, and and this very well may end up uh, in 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 the intended result of the defense, which is a mistrial, yes, or a retrial. So it could happen. Certainly, on a technicality like this, it's quite a big technicality. So yeah, is this a setup? <laughs> is this a coincidence? Uh, it's very difficult to say. Uh, however, it is uh, quite convenient for the Maxwell team. Yes. Okay. Well, look, uh, that's all we've got for you today, I'm afraid. Uh, slightly shorter news today, but uh, well, thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday, uh, and we hope you have a great weekend. In the meantime, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.